It is six minutes after 8 o'clock on AM 550, FM 99.9, WSAU, and worldwide at WSAU.com as well. As always, I am WSAU News Director Mike Leishner, joined on the phone today by Merle Kelch, Kelch & Associates, joining us from the great state of Texas, Dallas, Texas, to be exact, Mm -hmm. no less. Uh, Merle, did anything significant happen in the Dallas area yesterday that you got to enjoy? Cowboy hats. Lots of cowboy hats. <laughs> we, we got cowboy hats. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. certainly some cowboy hats. Uh, and there were certainly some people celebrating at the bar last night as well, from what well, I understand. Well, there were indeed. You know, um, folks, if you've not been to a Gaylord Hotel or a property, they're just absolutely enormous. And uh, I was just telling uh, Mike here on break before we started, there's 1,800 guest rooms in multiple conferences going on all at the same time in this place. It's just huge. And so last night we had, uh, um, you know, our, our group, since there's 700 of us, we have, you know, a whole section of the hotel we have. And so we have our night. And then, of course, it uh, it went a little bit long last night because the game kept going on. So mm-hmm. we just left the bar open um, a little bit longer. And, and, boy, the whole place just went absolutely crazy. The hotel uh, and the final home run hit at the end of the night by uh, the Rodriguez. Uh, the person who hit it, mm-hmm. I don't know a ton about uh, Texas uh, uh, baseball, but boy, it was really a, a lot of fun to just hear a whole hotel erupt. Yeah, uh, Adonis Garcia hit and has had uh, you know a, oh. a fantastic postseason you know to begin with, and he hits a walk off home run in Game One of the uh, of the World Series to to cap it off and. You know that, and and as uh, we remind you that the phone lines are open at seven one five eight four five two one five five. Just because we have Merle uh, on phone doesn't mean we don't have an open phone line for you. Uh, we do as well. In fact, we're going to get to one of those calls here in just a moment. But uh, to to, to kind of wrap this up, Merle, you know, you said you were there amid the atmosphere, amid the chaos, and you know, to me, that is just the absolute best part about being a fan, even if it's not necessarily your team, just to see everybody go crazy at the exact same moment like that is uh, is what it's about. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's the, you know, the game-winning field goal at the last minute. It's your team that kicked it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it was just a, just a blast. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, indeed, a good time. Again, 715-845-2155 is the number to call. Good morning. You're making financial sense with Merle Kelch. Who are we talking to today? Jim. Morning, Jim. Morning, sir. I'm envying you. I'm envying you. I am envying you. I wish I were there. Well, I'll tell you what, if you saw the rain outside, you'd probably say, Jesus, it's just like Wassa. Merle, I'm uh, thinking of investing in some small cap stocks. Would you suggest an ETF, and what kind of one would you suggest? You know, the ETFs, I, I like ETFs, but um, uh, Jim, for you and for everybody else, and we'll talk about the small cap in a second. Um, for ETFs, I like them, but so many people don't know what's on the inside. And so I always recommend, and Jim to you too, make sure you read what the ETF, because there's an ETF about about anything and everything that's out there. And, and so with that, make sure you know what's on the inside. So if you're going to use an ETF with small cap, which, by the way, we will use um, an ETF for small cap, because a lot of time, particularly inside of like the, the ETFs for small cap value, we can't find enough companies on the inside to be able to do what we want to. And I like the ETF because then I can buy them all. If that makes any sense to you. Um, so, so I like an ETF. Um, 
But again, know what's on the inside. You know, are they actually ETFs of companies that you like? Um, are they derivatives of small companies? Am I making sense on this? Um, are they um, yeah. parts of you know companies? But but I think an ETF is 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 a good move, especially in that small cap arena, because one, the companies move so fast back and forth. Jim, you and I aren't going to be able to keep track of that, and I like an ETF in that space especially, um, because let's let a manager and a team of a couple hundred people do the work on the small companies for us, and, and we're going to pay them a small fee that the ETF is, so it's not a bad place to go. I don't have a recommendation of a particular ETF. That's not what we do here without you know, having to give out prospectus and all that sort of stuff, but there's a lot of good ones that are out there. But just make sure that you know what's on the inside. Are they, are they companies? Are they derivatives? Are there some combination there, uh, thereof? Um, is the company 100% invested? Are they 20% invested and the rest of it is all leverage? Make sure you know that information before you buy uh, the ETF. But in that space, the small cap, um, I do like an ETF myself. Thank you very much. I hope that helps you, Jim. Good luck. You bet. All right. Thanks for the call, Jim. You know, one one follow-up to that, uh, Merle, when you're talking about uh, diversification, you, you said these ETFs can oftentimes have a lot of different uh, pieces in them. I mean, it, it, would that be then, you know, a good way to diversify your portfolio or diversification strategy to make sure that you've got a good mix of things in there so you're not tied to one sector or one particular type of investment? You know, in you bring up a really good question on that, uh, Mike, in a sense that an ETF, does it help with diversification? The answer, like everything else, is yes, no. Um, yes, no. There we go. Um, and so and it is this. You know, you can find an ETF that's going to be, um, uh, you know, so thin that it's going to have 10 different stocks in it. Well, that's not very diversified. ETF that's got 500 stocks. And again, it depends upon what you're looking for, but you've got to dig into it. Now, if we look at, for example, if I want to buy mutual funds in that small cap value range, so I go to Morningstar and I put in all the parameters that I want for mutual funds, and I look for them inside of that uh, small cap range, uh, by the time I get done with the parameters and the weird stuff that I want for funds, I'm, I'm done with like two or three funds, maybe four, out of 15,000 that are open in the open marketplace. Now, um, you, you narrow it down to what you want. And so with that, you look at those couple of funds, you're like, geez, I'm not sure if I like that, but I can have an ETF and, and let them do the work and I get the benefits that all five or seven of those funds would have inside of the ETFs that we'll use. So I like that diversification. Uh-huh. It allows me to spread that around instantly instead of an ETF rather than having to pick which one or two of the six funds that are available. I'll just do an ETF and I get this smattering of all the, the better stocks in it right off the bat and at a lesser price. And so uh, the ETFs work well for that in that type of range. I, I do enjoy them for that purpose. 715-845-2155 is the number to call. Good morning. You're making financial sense with Merle Kelch. Who are we talking to today? Uh, Carl from Pulver. Well, hello there, Carl from Pulver. How are you doing? Hey, Merle. Uh, just to change the subject. Yeah. How do you? What do you think about the 4% rule for what retiring... So you, your money will outlast you. You know, four percent is is is. I don't have a problem with the four percent rule. Now, just to let you know, when I started in this business, it was six percent rule. And uh, being a, a finance major from Whitewater, I got to give a plug out there at the college. 
you know, they always said use 5% because that's a, a better number. And so for 30 years in this industry, I used 5%. And you know what? Unless a person did dumb stuff, um, we've never had anybody go broke using 5%. So if a person uses 4%, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, 4% will work just fine as well. But 5%, you can, you can do pretty well with 5%. You can almost always find a place that's going to give you an average of 5% from someplace. Uh, today, for example, CDs are a great place. You can get 5%. So just as an example. But there's nothing wrong with 4%. In fact, an article that we had in the program we talked about last week, um, whatever this article was, and I forgot who did it, said, well, now we can go to 47 because interest rates went up. Well, that still sounds like it's pretty close to 5% for me. But, you know, for the longest time, you would have people that would tell saying, well, I'm going to take out 10% of my portfolio because that's what I'm making. Well, no, no, you, you do that, you're going to spend the, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to end up eating the goose that's laying the golden eggs along the way. So 4 or 5% seems to be the best range. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you, sir. Yep. Again, thanks for the call. And and uh, just a refresher again, uh, they, we were talking about 4 or 5% rule. Uh, just exactly what is that rule? Well, what it is is, is let's you have a you have a portfolio and it's diversified and you have that money spread around and it's earning maybe you know six to eight percent on average over years, which means you know some years you get ten, some years you get minus five, you know. Mm-hmm. But you're earning that on average, but you're only taking out four percent a year of income. So that way, the portfolio has a chance to make some gains, as uh, swallow some losses, and you're not taking out too much to have that portfolio depreciate down to a point where there's no money left at the end of the game. Um, so you're only withdrawing, again, uh, a 4% um, or 5% that we've used for years out of that portfolio. Not 10, not 8, not 15, uh, but only 4% in this in this instance. So uh, what – and I'll, I had a thought there, and it just uh, el- eluded me. But uh, would would a, a trust fund – or excuse me, not a trust fund uh, – We'll have to come back to that. Either way, we're making financial sense with Merle Kelch on AM550, FM 99.9, WSAU, online at WSAU.com as well. Again, if you have a question for Merle, we do have an open phone line for you at 715-845-2155, and uh, we'll be back with more after this. Nineteen minutes after eight o'clock at AM five fifty FM ninety nine nine WSAU online at WSAU.com as well. Mostly cloudy skies outside the studios in downtown Wausau. We are going to struggle into the mid thirties today. Yes, I said it. We are struggling into the mid thirties. My stubborn you know what may finally have to turn the furnace on. We'll see what happens later today. Uh, as we join Merle Kelch live on location in Dallas. Merle, uh we were able to talk through and, and solve what my, uh, for lack of a better term is, I'm going to call it a senior moment uh, just before the break. I was thinking of the term endowment mm-hmm. and and uh, if that had any sort of bearing on the uh, 4% rule that we were talking about earlier. You told me not necessarily, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. so so an endowment is is well, probably the most simplest way to say it's a gift for something. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I endowed upon you, I gave upon you. Um, so uh, a lot of firms that then create an endowment, um, they usually then um, have um, an income set to it. So uh, let's say um, I would give an endowment to a um, university, and from that university, they can only take out the income from it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So 
So as a result of that, you hear a lot of the percentages coming from an endowment because it's part that was originally set up as part of that gift. So such as you can only take out 4% or 5% income stream from that endowment um, over the lifetime and thereby retaining that principal and only taking the income stream off of it. Um, I have some uh, some clients that do this sort of work, and if you're listening, uh, I'm very proud of what they do. Uh, they run an endowment um, inside of a trust account that um, only gives uh, that gives money for um, piano and um, education purposes, and then they also then go through and purchase and replace instruments for kids in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what a fantastic uh, thing! I would love to at some point in time in my life do the same thing to uh, do exactly that, because I think music is just such a, a strong, strong uh, thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and again, the, the, this all kind of stems from the, the, the uh, discussion earlier about how much of your retirement fund you should be taking out to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fund whatever it is that you want to do yeah. uh, in retirement. And uh, so that, you know, it, my example was uh, at one time, Minnesota State University Moorhead was looking to start a Division One men's hockey program and they wanted 15 million dollar endowment to get the program started that was going to help them hire the coach get equipment and and just get things going well of course the thinking is you get that 15 million dollars into some sort of an investment fund and then you can fund the program off the interest well then and get it going. Yeah. yeah you have to keep that 15 million dollars in there though that can't be spent that's your your seed money if you will yeah and that's and that's the whole thing so you know, an endowment or that 4% income rules. Now, you know, the gentleman we call him before, they, they call it the 4% rule and, and kind of the general consensus is you, you whatever money you have for retirement, you take 4% income out. And so folks, as we're talking about in case you came back after break and joined us. So you start taking that 4% income and thereby leaving the principal continue to keep growing. And so thereby you would then have that money, um, at least in theory and in practice, it tends to work out that way. You'd have that money going on indefinitely throughout the course of your lifetime. What's interesting is in the early 80s when the interest rates were at 13 and 15 and 17 percent, and, and man, you could get CDs at that point in time at 10 percent, for those of you that remember, everybody thought that, well, I don't have to stick with that 4 or 5 percent rule. I'm going to make it 8 or 9 percent. A lot of people got themselves in trouble as a result of doing so. So I'm happy that the industry is coming by again and saying, you know, 4 percent rule, well, now 4.7 according to the articles from last week. But I'm really happy that we're using that interest rate because it makes much more sense, especially long term, uh, because interest rates will go up. And that's part of the thing we're saying, OK, we're going to fill up the pot a little bit, even though the interest rates have gone up. It still makes sense to be in that four or five percent income range for taking that money out and not jumping up to that eight or nine. You're going to end up shooting yourself in the foot. So then to put a wrap on this uh, at this <laughs> point, uh, do, at what point then does it make sense to start drawing down a bit on that uh, that principle or that seed money, if you will, uh, thinking yeah. that, okay, it doesn't have to last me another 10 years the way it was designed to, well, maybe 15 years ago. You know, Mike, you put on something I, I have as a joke. I say to a joke as many clients and prospects and people come in to see us. I say it as a joke, but it hits right to the home. Uh, it hits right home. And so I'll say it to you mm-hmm. and for everybody listening. Um, Mike, if you can tell me the day you're going to die, I can make the rest of the numbers work perfectly. It's not a problem. <laughs> right. And, and so most people go, well, uh, that's the whole point. We don't know when that's going to be. You know, 
Um, I'm I'm already older than my father was when my father passed away, and so I don't know, you know, where's that going to go from me standpoint? I don't know this. You know, mom's 83 and still doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when I'm going to die, and so as a result of that, I need to make sure I still have that money sitting inside of the pot um, uh, until whenever that might be. Now, um, everybody has their own way of saying, well, I've got enough inside of the pot, I'm going to do something differently with it. You know, we'll have... Clients will say, well, I'm just going to, and I'm going to use an easy round number, folks. I have $100,000. This is my example. And I'm going to keep $100,000 there. But if it goes to 125, I'm going to give the kids 5,000 bucks. You know, so we have people that will do that sort of thing along the way. Or um, if it hits $125,000, I'm going to take $5,000 and take a vacation. But they always make sure they keep that base and they don't spend it. Again, the problem is we don't know when we're going to die or how long we're going to live. And the problem is if we get older, it seems to cost more money, at least from health care. And we're still going to need that money later on, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always the, the, the battle that we have is is how long are we going to live. And, folks, we're living longer and longer um, along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it, it, it would be so much easier if we just had that right in front of us in so many ways. But uh, yeah. it's it's certainly not. And, again, that's why we have people – like Merle Kelch and uh, shows like Making Financial Sense. Do you like how I took that from uh, from a senior moment that I had you, live on the air, yeah. and all of a sudden we made a full segment out of it? Only on that, Making Financial Sense does that happen. That was a beautiful, beautiful twist. Wonderful. <laughs> 715-845-2155 is the number to call if you've got a question for Merle. Uh, we would love to connect with you on the air. You can even give us a call during the break, and Merle might even have a moment or two to prepare his answer. And in that case, you may even get a correct answer. Well, let's not let's not push the uh, the boundaries <laughs> of of our capabilities here. So, yeah. Again, Merle joining us live from uh, from a conference in Dallas, Texas, right now. Uh, Merle, obviously, you had a short week in the office, but uh, you know, while you were in the office, so uh, what were the main questions that uh, people were coming in to ask? Besides, you know, the obvious of, hey, can my money last to the end of my life? We've been having a bunch of people coming in saying, can I retire? Um, and, and it's kind of interesting because last year, uh, it seemed like the number of people saying, can I retire, fell off because we've seen the markets dropping off so much. And and uh, as a result, I think, then, of people saying, well, geez, um, I really didn't go entirely broke. And it came back a little bit this year. I think now we're starting to see some people retiring. And that's one of the, the uh, biggest things that we've had is, People coming in saying, hey, can I retire? And doing those quick calculations with people saying, yep, you're in a neighborhood. You can do that. And then discussing how we get there. That's been the, the biggest thing. And, and the answer is, folks, you still get to retire, even though the market <laughs> excuse me, is down here over the course of the last couple of months. And, yeah, you still get to retire. You're going to be uh, just fine from that standpoint. But um, seek that financial professional and ask those numbers. There's an article that's out here, and I want to spin this, because um, an article by the name of uh, written by Maury Set. Stetner, oh geez, Um, that's the best I got, that's his name. So the title of the article is kind of interesting to me because it's called Financial Advisors Make Rich People Richer, But Is That All That There Is? And inside of the article, they talk about one of the age-old things in our industry uh, uh, I see happen time and time again. So I've been here for a while, so I've I've been in this industry now for well over 30 years. Uh, In fact, um, it'll be 34 years, um, uh, 35 years coming up this February that I've been in this industry. I'm kind of catching on. Okay, that part was a joke. Mm, well, you know, we everybody but, has their opinions <laughs> about that. So 
I've, I've seen I've seen people in this industry on my side of this um, who, as they come along, say, well, I'm only going to work with people that are $500,000. I'm only going to work if they have that net worth. And, and I, I look at that, and, and part of me says, you know, how can you be so big-headed you're not going to take care of whoever um, needs help? And I've always been a big fan of that. And so we just had a, a segment of it yesterday inside of our um, our group, and then here's an article um, talking about the very same thing um, about our industry and taking care of people. And so certainly um, you have the people who are, you know, with, you know, the big wirehouses and that whole bit are multimillionaires and then they're going to get richer because somebody's going to help them. But it tends to be the independent advisor, which certainly that I am, we don't have any ties to one company's product or service. Um, that helps the, the, you know, the, the guy that's you know, out there putting in his, you know, his eight hours of punching the clock and building and manufacturing, making something. It's, it's the independent advisors that tend to help those folks out quite a bit because we're willing to help anybody. And as I'm sitting here reading the article, I kind of smile to myself because I've had thanks and I'm bragging a little bit from people who said I would have never been able to retire if you didn't help straighten me out. And, and what it was, and it wasn't somebody who um, you know made the most money or was the owner of a company. It was just somebody that just was going down on the path and doing some stuff. And we straightened them out a little bit when they were younger and helped them save. And they're able to retire. And they say, thank you. And that means just an absolute ton to me when it happens. And in fact, uh, in my... Uh, uh, industry or am I, am I work in this industry? Um, the two best payments I've ever had were uh, recipes. And that kind of sounds odd, but they okay. meant the most to me. Um, we had a, a lady that needed some help with, um, some stuff and I gave her a hand. She goes, well, how much do I owe you? I said, remember when I was a kid and you made that corn chowder soup? And she goes, yeah. I said, I want that recipe. That's my payment. She goes, absolutely. So she gave it. It's like the biggest payment I had. The recipe still on my desk yet uh, because it meant a ton to me because, right. uh, you know, we could do something to help somebody out. And it brought back a memory from when I was a kid. Um, so, you know, in our industry, folks, you take care of people and then people take care of you. And mm-hmm. I've been a longstanding proponent of that. Um, and I always like to tell people, if, you know, if your advisor said they're not going to help you with this part of it because they're not going to help you. Well, they're not really um, uh, guiding themselves for you. Um, uh, they're guiding you to benefit them, and I think it's a wrong path to be in our industry. All right, I'll hop off my soapbox. Thank you very much. Tip your waitress on the way out. Now I know what I'm making for the Jaguars <laughs> game tomorrow. 715-845-2155 is the number to call. We'll be back with more with Merle after this, but first, here's a check of your news. 8.36 on this Saturday morning on AM 550 FM 99.9 WSAU, online at WSAU.com as well. Once again, Merle Kelch joining us live from Dallas, Texas. Uh, he was just telling me how good the barbecue was uh, down there at the uh, Gaylord property in Dallas that he is staying at. Uh, you know, that uh, they, there's a whole fight between, you know, Kansas City barbecue, Nashville barbecue, Texas barbecue. I mean, can, can we just, like, say that they're all good and they ha- all have their own, um, you know, good qualities? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. Yeah. Folks, last night we had a, you know, of course, we have uh, 700 people here from our group in this hotel. Mm-hmm. And they had a big buffet set up. And there's all these people wasting their time having salads. <laughs> and they're having beef brisket on the end. I'm thinking, what's wrong with you people? So I just kind of went through. I put some vegetable on my plate and I put uh-huh. a big chunk of brisket down. I said, aren't you going to have the salad? No, I'm not. I'm going to have beef. 
And uh, so then I got done, and I had more vegetables and more beef. It was a wonderful evening dinner. You know, and, and I'm right there with you. Yes, I, I will go for the salad. Yes, I actually, you know, based on my uh, heart condition and uh, the necessary blood thinners I'm on, yes, I actually do have to uh, keep it consistent. But, yeah, if, if there's brisket there and they're doing it right in Texas, I'm that's what I'm going for. I, oh, yeah. Hey, I'm it, it's, a, it's, a one, it's a one-time deal. Go for it. Go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so an article by Greg Robb. Um, pops up and he says the Fed won't raise rates next week in hopes that they're done. Well, um, he may or may not write. He's out of the article. Uh, they've got a number of chief economists coming up from multiple places, including uh, Stephen Stanley from uh, Stephen Stanley. Yes, that's what it is uh, from um, Satander. So he agrees that the Fed's not going to do anything. And so the general consensus is that the Federal Reserve is not going to increase interest rates next week. Uh, but the Federal Reserve is still holding out that maybe in their December meeting they may increase it once again. And the reason for that is we're seeing the economy that is still holding up pretty strong, but yet we're seeing inflation and things slowing down in certain areas and driving that inflation down. So we'll see what happens with the Federal Reserve. But hopefully if the Federal Reserve holds, we can see the stock market start to come back up a little bit. Um, uh, of course, we see the market come down once again um, yesterday. So we have a uh, losing week for the week. And in doing so, there's another article. See how I did that? I spun that right around there. Indeed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, an article uh, by Francis Yu. It says the S&P 500 index enters a correction. And here's what that means for future performance. Now, a correction is when the market drops 10%. So from the peak to now, the S&P 500 is down 10% as of yesterday. Uh, in fact, it's for the 103rd time in history citing this article here. And so what does that mean then going forward? And so she does a real nice job inside of this article saying, well, what's happened when the um, S&P 500 is corrected in the past? And so in the past 15 or fifteen corrections, again, down 10%, what has happened and what's interesting is the market tended to then, the next three months afterwards, uh, go up by 10.1% after a correction, which means, as we've said so much before, well, 10% corrections happen. Uh, we're not losing um, hope about the world because companies are still making money. We're still going forward. There's still milk being made. Um, and so if you hold on to it, you should be fine. And we don't pull the trigger or do knee-jerk reactions. So in here, she kind of goes in. So it's an interesting uh, an article. Usually one week after we hit the bottom or we have the hit the correction number, which would have been on Friday, uh, we see the market go up about 1.5%. And then it's down for two, three, and, and one month later. But then as we start getting to three, six, and one year later, uh, we see those markets tend to uh, increase. Will it happen as a result of reading this article? Boy, I have no idea. Uh, but statistics say that we tend to do pretty good on average and going forward. In fact, she even goes back to as late as 1928 and says the S&P 500 rose an average of 9.1% following a correction again, which is a 10% drop. So hang on, folks. We're not at the end. We're not falling apart. We should be just fine. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot that makes sense in what you're saying in there, especially when you just look at the most basic uh, graph chart of all this, which is what most of us think of the stock market as you see the line going up and down, up and down. But generally speaking, it's always pointing upward or the mean is always pointing upward, meaning if you go down by 10% at some point, don't panic, don't do something irrational because at a certain point you're going to be up as as you said 10.1 percent meaning mm -hmm. you're still making money yeah um and, and i'll tell you what um i kind of get excited when the stock market drops like this 
um, because now we're going to go through and start placing money, not only personally, um, but placing money for clients. As a result of the market being down, we just everything just went on sale. So we'll be enormously busy next week and taking advantage of the sale prices we just got inside of the marketplace. Don't get me wrong. I like 10% off. Um, I like it a lot. And if we do it, we're going to take advantage of it now and what we can. I especially like 10% off on pizza. <laughs> That's just me. He's Merle um, Kells for making financial sense on AM550, <laughs> FM 99.9, WSAU, and at WSAU.com as well. Of course, the phone lines are open just because we have Merle on the phone doesn't mean we don't have an open phone line for you. So if you have a question, give us a call at 715-845-2155. Uh, Merle, you know, when you're, um, when you're looking at something like this when the market is down, and let's say maybe the market, we have the 10% correction that we've been talking about. Let's say that extends for you know, a month or two, and we don't rebound as quickly. That, uh, to me, on the surface, would seem like a time to maybe look at the portfolio and rebalance some things. So is that what uh, is that what you're going to be, would be doing or maybe would recommend as well? Well, we, we'll, we'll certainly do rebalancing, and we do that part of our process. Um, I'm, I'll give you a little bit of a process of what I tend to look at or what I like to look at with my clients. Our industry, if a person wants to take out $500 a month, um, you can set up so it's all automated. You don't have to think about it. As the advisor, it just happens automatically. You don't have to think about it at all. You can set them up to do that. I don't like to do that. Um, I like to be hands-on. And so in a portfolio, I can rebalance a portfolio, and I can look at it every month for those clients that are doing that. And I use that distribution they want to take out monthly. I'll use that distribution to keep the portfolio in balance at least as much as you can. And so I like to do it that way to try to you know keep that balance going. Um, and in there, you had a question I was going someplace for, it and I just completely missed. But um, you know, so we want to we want to have those uh, balances in the portfolio one way or another um, as we're taking those distributions. And geez, for the life of me, I missed what we talked yeah, about. Yeah, and, and you know, you're but I'm sure that rebalancing and taking a look to make sure that you've got enough there to meet your goals is something that you're you're doing all the time but maybe at a time when you're we're seeing some sort of a correction or the market seems to be on an extended downward trend or an extended losing streak as uh, uh jacksonville jaguar fans like myself but we know a whole lot about those uh or packer fans now too yeah. yeah yeah that's true uh you're probably maybe more uh looking at rebalancing or maybe looking at it a little closer than you normally would well, you know, so so the other part of that, and so thank you, you, you parked it back in my head where I was going with it. So you, you can rebalance a portfolio in two different ways. You can rebalance a portfolio by when you're taking distributions out to sell those things that are um, maybe higher and taking a little bit of profit. Weird, you sell when you're high. Kind of strange, but mm -hmm. okay, say that tongue-in-cheek with humor. <laughs> um, the other way you can uh, take advantage of it is by buying stuff when it's on sale, um, by putting more cash in. So it's an opportune time right now since the markets are down. So if you're either retiring or you're getting ready to retire or you're putting some money in, you know, you look at it and say, well, geez, let's, let's go ahead and get some of this done now since the market is up, uh, lower. Um, and, and so that's some of the stuff that we're going to be doing uh, throughout the course of, of the next couple of weeks since we get down to the marketplace. We'll go through and we'll start saying, okay, we've got a little bit of cash. We want to get invested and do something now since we're down. So we'll be doing quite a bit of that um, uh, the next few weeks. But buying in low, selling high, strange concept.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's again contrary to uh, everything that we've ever been been told. But I, yeah. there's certainly times where I'm I'm sure it applies. Yeah. Seven one five eight four five two one five five is the number to call. We'll be back with more with Merle after this here on Making Financial Sense. Wrapping things up on another edition of Making Financial Sense here on AM 550, FM 99.9 WSAU, online at WSAU.com as well. We do have another uh, 10 minutes or so left in the show, so if you've got a question, feel free to give us a call at 715-845-2155, uh, just like uh, this person has done right now. So there we go. Uh, never mind, we've lost you, so go ahead and uh, call back if you would like, 715-845-2155 again. Uh, if you would like to connect with Merle, uh, who I understand is reading something right now, and uh, that scares me, actually. Well, you know, the assumption is there that you think I can read. <laughs> yes, yeah, 715-845-2155 is the number to call. Good morning. You're making financial sense with Merle Kelch. Well, good morning, guys. Um, I wanted to... Uh, call in, but then I realized I was joining the club because I forgot why I was calling. <laughs> uh, folks, no. if you've been with us from the beginning, we have had our senior moments today. It's, it's been one of those days. What's your name, sir? And I can say I'm just kidding, you guys. Uh, this is John from Stevens Point. I have a question. Um, a person might have some international um, investing uh as part of you know their overall portfolio mix, yeah. let's say it's just in there. Um, the Vanguard people, since the beginning of the year, uh, and looking at some of their literature, have been saying, and it's rare uh, to me that that they take such a, a, a firm stand on something. You know, when they're when they're communicating their outlook for the coming year. Well, the beginning of last year, they were talking about. Um, an overallocation to international investments, you know, likely through an ETF or mutual fund, because they really thought international markets were going to outperform. Um, it hasn't happened to any great extent yet, and I'm wondering at Merle's, um, wondering what Merle's viewpoint is on, uh, let's call it a higher than normal allocation to international stocks. So I, um... You know, John, it's in here is if we take a look at uh, part of modern portfolio theory and, and um, studies have been done um, by DFA, which is a, a big fund family that does institutional grade stuff. They, they found that our, uh, one of our best uh, diversification between U.S. and international is about 70-30. Now, I'm not telling people to run out and do this, have to do it, but that's, I mean, that's, that's a model that I, I use a lot of times and part of modern portfolio theory shows that is about a 70-30 mix. So 70 U.S., 30 international. So, and, and because of the tendency to have negative, cor- or, uh, um, uh, negative correlations between each other, and so I'll, I'll back up with that so it doesn't sound so heavy for a second, but usually if the U.S. is going up, internationals are going down and vice versa. But by having that 70-30 blend between the two, it tends to reduce the risk because you get the averaging of both of them. And sometimes you get lucky by trying to maybe – um, overweight to international or overweight to the U.S., and sometimes you can do that. But at large, I'm a big fan of saying, let's just stay with the 70-30 because over time we're going to do better than trying to guess the marketplace. Because as soon as we try to start guessing the marketplace, we tend to start missing. And if we miss, 
our rates of returns fall off lower than if we would have just stayed and left it alone to begin with. And we find over the years that that tends to be the case. So the 70-30 mix is what you see through modern portfolio theory. Um, you tend to see through like uh, the studies that come from DFA funds is that 70-30 of international uh, to U.S. blend. And, and so my thought would be is if you're going to go down that path, do some homework, of course. Uh, but I, I would stay with that and not try to overweight from one to the other because you have to hit it right. If you don't, you're probably not going to be any different than where you were if you would have just left it at a diversified blend. Let's say that 70-30 mix if that was the case. So I would stay in that neighborhood um, and, and do it that way. Now, a little trick that I do, John, if this might help you out, though, is uh, try not to buy international funds. And now there's a difference here between international and global funds. So international funds tend to be everything outside of the U.S., as where a global fund will include the U.S. too. So, again, as we talked about earlier in the show, where we said, well, let's buy the ETF because we can't guess which stocks we're going to have, I'm, I like using a global fund because if they're not getting the rate of return out of Brazil, I'm making something up here, John. But they said, well, maybe we can get a little bit inside of the U.S. Let's put some of the U.S. instead. Let those guys with their teams of hundreds of people, let them do that stuff for me. So I don't have to try to think that out. And so I'll tend to not use international for my 30%. I'll tend to use a global fund instead. Well, Merle, that's an interesting point of view. I hadn't considered that before. One last question. Mm -hmm. uh, because they will typically have in a global fund uh, U.S. holdings, does mm -hmm. a person want to then reflect their global skew uh, with some U.S. Uh, equities in their ETF or mutual fund to the 70-30 blend. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Rather than saying I've got, um, you know, X thousands in my U.S. portfolio and my X thousands in my global, I'm actually picking up some U.S. from the global. So do we want to kind of tend to consider that in the 70-30 mix? And see, and I don't look at it that way, John. And the reason is, is that I look at it and say, global, I'm going to use as my international. And the reason is because it could be U.S. today and two weeks from now, the U.S. could be gone and there's someplace else. And so I don't think of that. I think, okay, I'm going to have a U.S. and I'm going to have my, I'm going to call it international slash global. Um, I'm going to have that. And I don't try to overcompensate for the U.S. I might have inside of there because I don't know how long it's going to be there. Uh, the manager Excellent. should move that in a week or two weeks. And so I tend to leave that separate in my mind uh, when I do that sort of planning. I hear you. And you've triggered one last question, and then I'll get mm -hmm. off the phone. Um, some global ETFs or mutual funds really look at many, many, many uh, markets and want a sampling from each uh, internationally uh, around the world. Some global funds, I've noticed, will do more management, and they might only be participating in, let's call it, um, 10 uh, global markets within you know, their mm -hmm. investment portfolio, rather than 25 global markets. Do you have a preference on either of those two um, portfolio groupings? You know, my, my friends at Vanguard probably aren't going to like me for a moment because there are always the people who say, you just put it in, you just you know let it stay there in your marketplace, and you don't change it, you only buy the S&P 500, that's it. I'm a bigger fan of having my stuff be a little bit more active. And again, this is my opinion, folks. I'm not saying it's right. Make sure you check with your financial professional. There, John, did you catch that disclaimer I got in there, that disclosure right away? <laughs> so, so in it, I like the active stuff, and here's the reason why. Um, 
you know, the, the, as uh, Warren Buffett says, the rising tide is going to lift all boats. When the markets go up, everybody's going to make money. But when the market goes out, I have the ability to have a manager then, or if I'm a manager, to say, well, I'm just going to let some stuff sit in cash for a little bit. And I'm going to let it sit there in cash. Because when the market goes out, I'm going to take advantage of the sale in the marketplace. And hopefully that gives me a little bit of leverage later on. I, I like that. Um, you know, the S&P 500 index, index, I'm just using this as an example, John. When the market goes up, man, you're, you can't beat them. They're going to go up. It's going to be great. But when it comes down, they're going to come down at that equal you know, amount of, of drop because they can't get out of their way and go to cash. By default, a lot of these funds have to be fully invested. And so as a result, they're not able to let their cash swell up and, and wait for the market to drop and then buy in again. And so that's the detriment part I don't like about indexes or some ETFs that are buying in that same type of a fashion. We don't have that ability to have the active management. I prefer oh. the active management myself. Man, man, then, Merle, what you're saying, not trying to translate, is perhaps yeah. on <laughs> this global uh, investment portfolio, look to perhaps an actively managed mutual uh, yeah. global fund rather than um, an ETF that is globally oriented. Sure. Is that I, I correct? think so, too. Is that what you're saying, Merle? Yeah, and so, yeah, it, yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, Mark Mobius, who has made a tremendous career in the in global investing industry, um, has done exactly that because, you know, he would say, "I'm really not liking Hong Kong with what's going on, so I'm going to stay out of Hong Kong. I'm going to pull some money from Hong Kong, and I'm making up countries here, and I'm going to put some money down here in uh, New Zealand because I like what's going on." And, uh, well, I don't like that. Um, China's good. We'll make some money here in China. We're going to move some money over here to Brazil, and they'll they'll do that stuff along the way, rather than just simply staying someplace um, that you can't get out of uh, out of because of one reason or another, because of a mandate. I, I prefer the active, especially on a global basis. All right. Well, thanks for the call again, uh, Merle. If uh, somebody wants to get in touch with you uh, outside of the show, how do they do that? Uh, folks, Monday morning, you can stop it and visit us. Kick the, kick the tires, have a cup of coffee on 3rd Avenue and Bridge Street, Wausau. And you can call us, 715-849-3600, outside of the Wausau area at 866-355-5100, or find us online at kelchenassociates.com. We'll be back with more next week. See you then, my friend.